0: Hello and welcome to Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and if I could break one rule of physics, the rule would be how much time it takes to get home in the commute. I wouldn't want to be able to bend time anytime because I feel like I just mess up the continuum. But in traffic, if I could bend time just a little bit, that would make me very happy.
1: I'm Caitlin, and if I could break one rule of physics, it would be how difficult it is to learn physics.
0: (laughs) And Caitlin also has a cold today. She did not sell her voice to, you know, gain human legs and find a prince.
1: I'm trying to be extremely
0: sexy right now, Leah. Do not. To give away all my <laughs> secrets.
2: <away> <laughs> I'm Kristen, and I've been watching a lot of The Expanse lately, so I, I, I think I would be interested in, like, rapid deceleration, like, there's a lot of cool stuff that happens in that show with things not moving the way that they're supposed to. And I don't know what I would do with it, but I'd be interested in having that ability.
3: And I'm Emily. I were going to have a lot of physics be broken. I think I would want for us to be able to actually have telekinesis. Uh, I would want Ooh. to be able to move objects using my brain easily at all times from any distance. It would be pretty cool if... You know, I could be on a Zoom call with somebody and I see like their mug in the distance or something behind them and I can make it move. That would be pretty cool. Or
0: get the TV remote, you know, Yeah, across the room. Change the channel for them. Yeah, exactly. Start typing on their manual. If someone else wants to write my book for me, you know, I'm not saying that's a bad idea. A big welcome to Emily XR Pan, New York Times bestselling author of The Astonishing Color of After and co-creator of the Foreshadow Anthology. Her next novel, An Arrow to the Moon, just came out this week and it is so beautiful. Tell us a bit about An Arrow to the Moon, Emily. Thank you so much for having me.
3: An Arrow to the Moon is a mashup of Romeo and Juliet and Chinese mythology Set in 1991 in the fictional town of Fairbridge. So it's about these two Asian American teenagers, Hunter and Luna, and they are my reimagining of the god of archery and the goddess of the moon. And they're both children of immigrant parents from Taiwan, but their parents straddle different ends of the political identity, all those cultural nuances. Hunter's family considers themselves to be Chinese and Luna's family considers themselves to be Taiwanese. And that's one of the points of tension it feeds into their rivalry. But at the heart of it, Luna and Hunter are trying to figure out how to navigate this world where they kind of feel like outsiders, they don't quite fit in. It's a predominantly white, community and school, and their families are crumbling around them. I won't go into detail as to um, what, what ways that's happening, but it's important to the story that their families are falling apart and they have to find their personal magic.
0: So if that hook doesn't get you, I don't know what will, but Romeo and Juliet, modern days... Beautiful, beautiful writing. Today, we're actually hoping to talk about how to make your magic system lyrical um, and how that plays in with genre. So, Emily, how would you describe your magic system in An Arrow to the Moon?
3: So there are definitely rules to how everything works in the story. I don't necessarily lay all of that out on the page because I don't want it to be so heavy handed. I want it to feel a little bit mysterious, a little bit ethereal, but there are rules. There are hard and fast rules that I make for myself in terms of, you know, when do the fireflies appear? How do those work? How do the cracks in the ground that are forming all over the town of Fairbridge work? And what laws of physics, we were just talking about laws of physics, what, you know, rules of the world. Am I actively following And what rules am I breaking? And how do those kind of guide how my characters are experiencing the story for themselves? So it's not, you know, when when we say magic system, a lot of the time we think of how do I develop this entire secondary world? How do people cast their spells? What's the cost? But for something like this, where... I'm writing in this space where I'm very intentionally setting things in the real world as we know it, but I've created this undercurrent of strangeness, this humming bit of magic in the background. I want there to be this feeling that I could walk out on the street and turn the corner and discover magic, or I might stumble into an opening, an entrance somewhere and discover magic. That's the feeling that I always want to have on the page for my characters. And so in terms of the magic system, it's about having those rules and making sure that they serve the story and aren't just there for the coolness points. Like they have to actually be necessary to the story that I'm telling. And it's also about getting my reader to suspend their disbelief. Because if the reader doesn't suspend their disbelief, it doesn't matter what I do. They're not going to be invested. They're not going to buy into it.
1: So I feel like that's something you do especially well in all of your writing. And so I would love to know a little bit more about how you go about helping readers to suspend their disbelief, to believe that they could turn the corner and find magic like
3: this. Yeah, for me, it's a lot about setting the expectations right in the opening pages. In The Astonishing Color of After, the first line is My mother is a bird. I immediately take you there Mm -hmm. because I want the reader to. Kind of get hit in the face with the idea that your expectations, whatever expectations you're bringing to this novel, set them aside. You're going to experience something different. And so with An Arrow to the Moon, it was a little bit trickier because I wanted Hunter and Luna to be so rooted in the real world and I wanted the magic for them to kind of creep up on them. So I I, you know, accidentally ended up with two prologues in this book as my way of introducing this sense of the world being a little bit off kilter. I usually am more anti-prologue than not.
0: Oh, interesting.
3: I'm also a teacher of creative writing. And I so often see prologues because people feel that need to have some kind of actiony thing right off the bat. Something to create suspense or or create this sense of there being a thrill that you have to catch up to. I think it, I think prologues oftentimes for, you know, especially newer writers or not necessarily newer writers, but just people who aren't so sure of their footing yet. I think that prologues can often be this way of trying to game the system. People write them a lot when they don't have enough trust in their ability to tell the, the actual story from the place where it really begins. And so I try very hard to resist the lure of the prologue because it can be very tempting in a moment of insecurity to be like, well, I need to give my reader something to latch onto. Uh, I need to give my reader, you know, that, that carrot that's dangling in front of them so that they will be invested enough to keep reading. But for an arrow to the moon, I needed to set the stage. So the two prologues, and I intentionally kept them as short as I possibly could. The two prologues are meant to be sort of like, you know, turning on the lights, kind of mixing colors, getting everything set up so that the reader understands, okay, so this is a, a world in which there is a certain set of rules that are magical. And there are, there's a certain set of rules that, is grounded in the history that we actually have experienced. You know, the second part, the second prologue, or whatever I'm calling it, is about the Terracotta Warriors, which is an actual piece of history. And it's on the day that the Terracotta Warriors were discovered, and I have this little bit of magic that rises up out of that discovery that then becomes kind of a, a propulsive moment in the background of the story it, it's this propulsive moment that frames the story but is not crucial to the story itself so i'm not giving some scene that's in the future of like i don't know hunter and luna kiss and then somebody falls off a cliff right that would be the tempting <laughs> thing that i think a uh, a greener writer might do if they're worried about getting the momentum rolling but I just need the reader to understand there's this context and I want the story to feel like it's something that's tied up in the forces of the universe. And so that's why it opens with talking about, you know, the, the girl who lived on the moon and how everything shifted off its axis. I'm trying to paint this portrait of our universe is more magical than you think it is.
0: I really like something you're getting at there. You talked about how they were very grounded in reality. Um, you have these certain rules, but at the same time, your prologues and this this art you're painting um, with the words gets very whimsical. And it seems to me, you know, in a magic system, you could almost wax as lyrical as you want, get as whimsical as you want, as long as you do have those internal rules to keep the audience grounded. That seems to be the key to suspending disbelief. They have to buy onto certain, you know, basic rules. There is some in- internal logic And after that, they'll follow you anywhere, right? So I wanted to cycle back a little bit. You said that
1: you're more anti-prologue than pro-prologue. And I feel like this is something that is such a controversial. People fight so much about this online, which I think is hilarious. Because I feel like you should write your book and then you can figure it out when it's done, if you need it or not. But I love what you're saying about it being a matter of trusting Your reader. And I would love you to talk a little bit more about how writers can look at their own work and decide if they need a prologue. I know that that's probably really difficult to say because every single book is different, but in general, do you have any thoughts about that?
3: Yeah, I think, well, it's not just a matter of trusting the reader, but also trusting yourself. A lot of the time, writers are a little bit worried that, you know, they're not getting the story moving quickly enough, but it definitely is also about trusting that the reader will stay with you long enough to get the gist of where you're going. I think that, as you were saying, it can be so tricky to kind of be prescriptive about something that is so subjective and so unique to every brain and every reading experience. But an experiment that can be done is if there is a prologue, what happens if you chop off the prologue and give the book to somebody to read? Are they able to follow it and be interested in it? Somebody who's never heard about your book Like not your mom who's read five drafts for you, you know, or your best friend who has heard you talk about it from, you know, a tiny seed of an idea to you drafting it. But somebody who has no understanding of your book, are they able to follow it and be invested from the first chapter? And if the answer is yes, and the prologue isn't contributing additional context that is crucial to how the reader is interpreting that first chapter, then I would say you probably don't need the prologue i think also a lot of the time as i was mentioning you know prologues can be so action heavy or so focused on giving the sense that there's going to be future conflict or or something in the future that we're going to need to care deeply about and i think the the trick there is that you're not actually giving your reader the chance to get to know any characters and be invested before you're trying to hook them in with something and so i actually find them oftentimes to be less useful than they're intended to be and i think it's interesting for example if you look at a uh, the song of ice and fire series george r r martin i think every single one of his prologues is completely unnecessary and i mean you know those are giant chonkers they're like really dense fantasy novels so probably a lot in there could be argued as unnecessary. But clearly, he feels the need to write them. And I think when it comes to things that are solidly sci-fi fantasy, people feel maybe more inclined to write them because there's kind of a fine tradition. There's this long history of writers putting in prologues, like the prologue maybe feels a little bit like it's a part of a book the way a table of contents might be part of a book or the way that chapter titles might be part of a book. It feels almost more like an aesthetic decision. And I feel very strongly that aesthetic decisions, I can make them, but I have to pick and choose. I can't, I can't have an entire book be based on aesthetic decisions because I'll lose the reader. It'll, it'll end up being a slog in some way. And so I have to pick and choose what am I keeping because it feels like it contributes to the atmosphere or it's something ornamental in the book versus what is actually serving the story. And I think the more I write, and I've written many, many novels, this is only my second one being published, but I have many novels in drawers that will never see the light of day, thank goodness. And (laughs) I really think that the more I write, the more I'm thinking constantly in service of what is necessary for this story. What can I trim what is actually getting in the way and I'm evaluating things that I you know put down on the page much more critically than I would have in the past
2: it's funny when you were talking about prologues my mind went right to twilight just because I think that has a prologue that's the kind you were talking about where it's like oh here's here's a future event that you're going to care about even if you don't now and yeah, I think I think as a writer, one of the hardest things is realizing that vibes don't make a story, which is such a bummer. But such um, a bummer. I love that you're able to take those vibes and service them to to what you're actually trying to do, and I think that that is a skill worth cultivating.
3: <laughs> it's also, I mean, you know, going back to Caitlin's question about trusting the reader, you, you know, readers generally, other than books that are assigned in school, which that's kind of a different reading experience. Let's pretend that we're only talking about reading experiences where readers you know, actively choose to pick up a book. They're willing participants. Yeah, exactly. People do not pick up a book and decide to invest time and energy in reading it if they do not think they're going to enjoy it. Even if you're hate reading something, right? I know that's a thing that people do. Even if you're hate reading something, you're hate reading because you are getting enjoyment out of hate reading it. And so as much as you want to pretend to yourself that which I think this is what I think is the common reason why people hate read is that they want to believe that they are more intellectual than the book deserves um the attention of Uh and I and I honestly feel like it's unnecessary for us to trick ourselves like that because reading is reading and reading should be fun and enjoyable and you should read whatever you want but you know that's a whole nother tangent. I, I think that the point <laughs> being anytime we open a book, even if you say you're hate reading book, anytime we open a book, we're looking to be entertained. We're looking to find something that captures our attention. And so you can trust the reader to want to be invested and stay with you long enough to really get to the heart of the story. And when you have something like that, where it's just maybe a scene that flashes into the future or a bit of the prologue that is like trying to dangle some future conflict in front of you or or be all mysterious, it's a little bit dismissive of the reader. It's a little bit like, I know you need, you know, some candy up front if I'm going to get you to sit down and enjoy this. But I think that readers have, readers are much more willing to get to know a character and, you know, figure out what are the rules of this world? What are the things that we care about? What what does this character need? I think readers are much more willing in the beginning to sit down and learn all that than people, than writers generally think they are. And then it's this fine line between at what point do you venture into the territory of, okay, now you're being gratuitous and you've given us way too much and uh-huh. you need to move into actual story.
1: A second ago, you mentioned that the magical elements need to be servicing the story. They can't be just uh, dressing. They can't be the aesthetic. And because so much of the way that you write is it creates this beautiful aesthetic that is so much a part of the story. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you manage using that beautiful lyrical language and and coming up with those beautiful metaphorical, like the, the magic system that is supposed to service the story. Because I think, I mean, I write much bigger epic. The magic system is a part of the world and it gets very... You know, it, we go into it because if you don't understand it, you don't understand the story. Figuring out is part of the story, which I mean, it is in your suit, but it's it's a different kind of story, if you know what I mean. So if you are using it in that way, how can you do it in a way that isn't going to take up too much time? So you lose readers because it, it looks like aesthetic where people get invested. Does mm. that make sense?
3: Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, you were talking specifically about language, right? And like the prose. Yes. I think... So if you read The Astonishing Color of After and then you read An Arrow to the Moon, I think they are very different reading experiences. And I think I was writing them in very different mindsets. You know, I wrote The Astonishing Color of After when I was dealing with grief. I also had not debuted yet. Nobody in the world knew who I, well, maybe a, a small, a tiny, tiny, tiny number of people knew who I was from my short story publications. But, you know, nobody in libraries knew who I was, right? You couldn't walk into a bookstore and and pull a book of of mine off the shelf. And so I was writing in this space where I was luxuriating in the language for myself and I was also using the language as a bit of a coping mechanism. And so I'm one of those authors who does that thing that you're not supposed to do and I read all of my reviews. And yeah, don't (laughs) do as I say, not as I do. Do not read your reviews. (laughs) I do not recommend it. Uh, I'm a masochist and... I, I have some kind of compulsion and can't help myself, but I often see in reviews and I always laugh because when when I see this, because I think people are right. I see people complain that the astonishing color of after is too dense with purple prose. And what was the purpose that it was serving at the time? It was serving me as I was writing my way through grief. It was serving me as I was figuring out who I was as a writer. And those were, extremely valuable things they might not be that valuable to certain readers right and so when I was writing an arrow to the moon I was thinking about writing in a very different way I was thinking a lot about the story and the experience I wanted to present to readers and so it might still be described as lyrical but when you actually examine the sentence structure I think that it's probably very obvious that I really trimmed a lot I really Cut and and did my best to make *An Arrow to the Moon* feel as sparse as I possibly could, while allowing bits of ornamentation here and there. I really was picking and choosing, but you know, I was thinking very much in service of the experience that I wanted to re- the reader to have. So I think that the two books are crafted very differently, and it's it'll be interesting because I'm not expecting to have the same reception as astonishing, because I think that they will just hit different readers. But, you know, there's always that purpose in the back of my mind, like, what it what purpose is this book serving? And not every book is for every reader and not and not every book is written for readers, period. Right? Like I wrote The Astonishing Color of After more for me than for anyone else.
1: Oh, you wrote it for me, too. Definitely.
0: (laughs) I love that, you know, keeping it really reader-focused, I think, is the takeaway here. Love what you said about trusting readers. I mean, we're all readers, right? And we love to be trusted, so that's great. <laughs> now we'll go ahead and move on to the portion of the podcast where we critique an audience submission. If you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all of our notes, you can view those on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So a quick summary of this week's chapter. Eure must balance tricky relationships with her sisters and a mom who's power hungry while trying to figure out her place in the world. But when their family receives a blessing slash curse, that her marriage and her sister's marriage will bring them all wealth. She has to figure out where she stands. What are some things we liked about this submission?
3: I loved that it felt like I was reading something really timeless and classic. There was this sense to it that it, it was almost like reading a fable. And I really liked that about it. There was almost something about it that was very atmospheric that it just felt to me like I it could be a book that I would pick up in the library and, and not know when it was published, when it was written, and not know when it was meant to be set. I mean, we we get the, you know, the location and the, the time of it written in the story is this fall 1061 AD. But I almost felt like I didn't need that information. It was just this story that instantly felt like it was going to have some kind of overarching feeling to it that was going to capture the experience of these sisters and and these marriages. And I was very much on board for that.
0: Agreed. I loved, we get this legend of a butterfly and I, I loved reading that. Definitely felt timeless.
1: I feel like the language is really beautiful in a lot of this. One of my favorite images was when Jia, Jia drops the dish and all of the blue ink is suddenly gone. It looks like um it says as if the dishes had reverted to an empty canvas when broken.
2: That was lovely. Yeah. I had that same line marked. So many, so many beautiful
3: images in here. I'm thinking of the the moment when um I think their mom walks in and She's like the eye of the storm moving. There are just mm-hmm. a lot of really wonderful turns of phrases and images in the description.
1: I love the foreshadowing because I feel like that story about the butterfly. I'm like, poor Chaja.
0: What's going <laughs> to happen coming. to you? What are What are some things that might need a second look? I was a little bit unclear
3: on the relationships between the sisters. And I also wasn't confident mm-hmm. that I would be able to differentiate between them. Like I wanted... More of their defining characteristics and their personalities. I I felt
1: that way a lot too, especially because this feels like a story about sisters. Where it's going to be like we have this defining moment where suddenly the sisters, because of the way the interaction happens, we have one sister who it seems like you are is about she's expecting her sister to start arguing with her because she says, oh, you'll never get married. And she doesn't. And I'm like, what changed here? I don't know, because I don't have context for what they were before. So I was really looking for that as well. I was and she says, I prefer it like this. It was a it was a big deal for her to say, I actually prefer you to my other sister. And and because we didn't have context, I was like, but what does this mean?
3: I also wanted to get a sense that there might be something a little bit magical just earlier in the story, because I went into it with the sense that it was going to be something purely historical (laughs) and realistic. And then as we go on, we get the story within the story about the butterfly. We get that, that legend being told. And then coming out of that, we hear that they encountered the Jing, the fox spirit, and suddenly the the this spirit is actually part of the main storyline. And I think that readers will need a little bit more preparation for that. Going back to what we were discussing before of what are your expectations when you begin reading a story, and how do you ensure that the reader is going to be along for the ride when suddenly things take a turn and. There's an element introduced that's maybe a little bit supernatural.
2: Yeah, I, I had the same note. I, I just feel like uh, we got a lot of information sort of out of order because in in the narration, there's a part where it says that like people whisper about magic behind their hands, but that comes after we have a very open conversation where one of the sisters shares a story about magic and neither of them really like acts like it's anything other than a story. And just having some of that shown to us rather than necessarily told to us like after the fact would be really helpful in helping build that world for us.
3: Yeah, and giving us a sense of, you know, a stronger sense of stakes and what each individual sister wants rather than kind of an overarching sense of expectations that it kind of feels almost like all the characters right now are a collective unit with shared expectations. And I wanted to see those nuances right off the bat. But I think this also goes, this also ties into the sense that, you know, other than you are being the narrator, I didn't have the clearest sense of emotion and personal stakes and internal conflict that I think I would expect to get in a story that seems like it's going to be very much focused on what's happening for the characters and and how do they feel internally? What are they experiencing? You know, we start by hearing that there's this wedding invitation and it seems like it's going to be very important for the family, but it's so, it feels so third person oriented in the beginning Mm -hmm. that I almost didn't even realize that there might be a specific POV that Mm -hmm. we were following. And I think that in order for me to, really be sticking along with it, I need to get a more personal sense. You know, whenever I'm editing, when I'm teaching, I'm always asking the question, what's supposed to be hooking me in right now? And this question is, we think the most about this question when we're talking about opening pages, right? That's certainly what agents are looking for, what editors are looking for. What is the hook? We ask that question all the time. And that question actually needs to be sustained throughout. It's this constant re-questioning of what is meant to be the force that's driving me to keep reading. But in the very start of the story, that's kind of your moment to let that shine and really surprise the reader or, or amuse the reader, right? Like it could be the voice of the character, or it could be that the prose is sharp and hilarious, or it could be my curiosity around a conflict or a character but whatever it needs whatever it is it needs to pack a punch and to do so it needs specificity and i feel like we don't have that specificity just yet in these pages i feel like i don't really understand any one person clearly enough to know what where should i be investing my emotions who am i supposed to be most connected to who am i supposed to be rooting for there's so much wonderful context and culture in these pages but why do I need those at this point? Like where, you know, I kind of lead, I, I need a little bit more guidance.
0: Great feedback. Great feedback. That is our time for today. Um, to this author, thank you so much for submitting. We enjoyed reading your work and Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. I feel like I've learned a ton tonight. Be sure to check out An Arrow to the Moon. We have special editions on sale in our store with gorgeous stenciled edges that Caitlin designed. So be sure to check them out. They are beautiful. Our next guest will be Holly Black, the number one New York Times bestselling author of over 30 fantasy novels for kids and teens. We'll be doing a special edition for her upcoming book, Book of Night, as well. So be sure to stay tuned on social media or subscribe to our newsletter to get a look. Books are available on our store website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.